This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Eric Jerome Dickey discusses his new erotic novel, One Night. Then PW editorial director Jim Milliot gives us our first preview of next month's Book Expo America. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen BookScan. What's happening in nonfiction, Mark? You so start we've us got um, uh, number two, our debut, The Whole 30, The 30 Day Guide to Total Health and uh, Food Freedom. This is from Melissa Hartwig and Dallas Hartwig, and they're the authors of It Starts with Food. They're both certified sports nutritionists and creators of this, The Whole 30, uh, the whole 30 program. So this is at number two. Um, here they offer their, you know, the Key to Success plan. They offer uh, recipes uh, to go along with their plan. So this not so surprising, but what what is uh, is um, John Krakauer, which is at number six, which is great. But I'm used to seeing him uh, with uh, any new book topping the list hmm. uh, number one. But this is Missoula Rape and Justice System in a College Town, and it's been getting lots of coverage uh, all over the place. And um, uh, and and we gave this a star review, saying the result is a hard-hitting true crime expose that looks underneath the he said, she said to get at the sex, sexist assumptions that help cover up and enable these crimes. So, um, But number six, John Krakauer, and, and again, he's uh, been getting quite a bit of, of play. So moving down the list a little bit, I was happy to see... This one memoir by Elizabeth Alexander, The Light of the World. She's a poet, Yale, African Studies professor. And she writes of her devastation at the death of her uh, artist husband who died of cardiac arrest at age 50 uh, while exercising in, the, in their basement. And and she she talks about, uh, he's from the Eritrea, Ethiopia. He talks about the Eritrean Ethiopian Civil War uh, where he was a uh, refugee. And really, it's, it's, it's kind of a love letter uh, to her husband. And it's a, it's a really wonderful book. Uh, New York Times did something on it just a few, a few weeks ago, uh, talking about how she talks about food and her husband. So mm-hmm. it's a really nice uh, book. And we, uh, we say that her fashioning her mellifluous narrative around the beauty she found and Gabriasus, uh, Gabri- her husband, Alexander's grateful, patient, and willing to pursue a fit of magical thinking that he might just return. That's a very... Really sounds sweet. really sweet. Yeah. So, um, and then uh, going down a little bit, 47, uh, we have April B- Bloomfield, uh, chef uh, and author of A Girl and Her Pig, turns now to A Girl and Her Greens, Hearty Meals from the Garden. And uh, here she's she, she talks about, uh, she offers recipes that are not vegetarian, but vegetable heavy. Mm-hmm. And often she'll treat 
meals, uh, you know, vegetables like a full meal, like how she'll cook a full uh, cauliflower. Hmm. Uh, and and so anyway, so it's uh, at number forty-seven. So it's just one of those cookbooks that have just made it, made it, you know, made it to the top. So we gave it a starred review. And at number forty-eight, we have Kate Bollock, who we'll be having on our show in just a, right. another a week or two. Spinster yep. making a life of one's own, and she's been she's been on a lot of uh, talk shows. And we say in this powerful memoir, we also gave it a star. Bollock, a cultural critic and contributing editor to The Atlantic, takes an unusual approach to telling her life story by focusing on her five awakeners. And we'll she'll discuss those when we when we get there but um uh basically she reflects on current expectations of women and marital status so it's been resonating number 48 we'll be talking to her in a few weeks yeah that's right she's slated to be on our show on june 5th so uh, fantastic tune in though i know all you listeners out there are listening dutifully to us every single week yes, so yeah. we don't even need to tell you <laughs> so <laughs> fiction what so we got? fiction on the fiction list um over let me take a look at what we've got here um, it, you know, no one, no one will be surprised to see that uh, David Baldacci is at number one. Uh, he tends to do that. This is Memory Man. Uh, this starts a new thriller series from Baldacci, who's obviously a bestseller many times mm-hmm. over, uh, and it introduces the Memory Man, uh, who forgets nothing, counts in colors, and sees time as pictures in his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his unique abilities are apparently the result of a, a hit that he suffered as an NFL rookie. It ended uh-huh. his football career, but uh, gives him many other options, including working as a cop. Mm-hmm. Um, but his his uh, his life is sort of the series of tragedies. His wife and daughter are murdered, uh, and uh, he he gives up his career in the police force and ends up barely scratching out a living as a personal investigator until. Uh, coincidence puts him kind of back in the game. Uh, We say that Baldacci supplies a multitude of clever touches as his wounded bear of a detective takes on a most ingenious enemy. Mm. Uh, So that sounds pretty intense. Great. And that's at number one. And just below it, uh, number five is The Bone Tree by Greg Isles. Uh, It's the fifth pen cage novel, middle book of a trilogy. So he's doing this sort of Mm consecutive trilogies and uh this is a, a historical influenced contemporary novel so uh the the protagonist pen cage uh his father is a fugitive suspected of murder and there are links uh, somehow to an unsolved civil rights case from the 1960s uh, and Penn himself is a uh, the mayor of Natchez Mississippi so there's uh you know lots of Southern flavor right. going on in here. Uh, and uh, we say that uh, some readers may feel that there's an excessive link between the villains of the story and the JFK assassination, um, and that the this tale of Penn's efforts to bring justice to those who committed horrendous crimes against African Americans would have been enough without mm-hmm. the conspiracy theories. But mm. it's still um, a pretty powerful story, and uh, he's doing a 10-city tour, so... Good, good luck to him. Yeah, Those are always <laughs> exhausting. Wow. And uh, at number six is God Help the Child by Toni Morrison. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. PW gave it a star. Every advance review has raved about it. Mm. Uh, it's a short, emotionally wrenching novel. Uh, it's her first novel since 2012, uh, but she is still mm. just turning out 
superlative prose. Uh, and uh, it's really a story about mothers, children, um, the ways children interact with one another and the world. And uh, we say that she explores characteristic themes of people held captive by inner struggles, the dilution of racism, violence and redemption. And her literary craftsmanship endures with sparse language, precise imagery, and even humor. Oh, wow. Wonderful. Um, a lot, a lot to love here. And, uh, that's at number six. Yeah. And finally, I just wanted to look a little bit further down the list to number 17. This is Beauty's Kingdom by Anne Rocalore. And if you don't know who Anne Rocalore is, that's Anne Rice. Um, many, 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 many years ago, uh, probably two decades ago, she wrote three books about, uh, more or less about Sleeping Beauty, but retold as a very erotic kinky story um, wow. and uh, did it under a pen name but it was sort of an open pseudonym like everybody knew that right, Anne right. Rocalore was Anne Rice and um, yeah, this this was before uh, she had her much publicized uh, religious experience mm-hmm. and became uh, very specifically devoted to Christianity and now um, I, I guess she's uh, decided that thanks to E.L. James and the success of Fifty Shades it's time to come back and capitalize on that by writing another wow. beauty book or maybe the time was just personally right for her sure. so um, Tiffany Rice who's a wonderful erotic romance author uh, did a great signature review for us in Publishers Weekly and right. um, and she says uh, you Pornography and its slightly more respectable cousin erotica are judged by whether they get the reader revved up. It's either thumbs up or thumbs down. And Beauty's Kingdom gets a thumbs up. All so, right. Wow. Um, she has much more to say about it, but uh, she's you know, not a perfect book. Uh, but these are you know, all her complaints are minor, and despite them, Beauty's Kingdom is a delightful, immersive read, playful, campy, explicit, erotic, mm. and provocative. Fantastic. So uh, that's definitely one to also keep an eye out for. And that's what I've got on uh, the fiction list. Sounds good. Sounds like a good list. It is. Uh, and yeah, we're really definitely starting to see those big spring and yep. summer books come yeah, along. Yeah. So it's just going to get more exciting yeah, from here. Right. Exactly. And of course, we have our summer reads up on our website right now. That's right. So if you want to get a sense of what to look out for mm-hmm. in the months ahead, right. um, that's that's the place to go. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Eric Jerome Dickey tells us how his new novel captures the thrill of the one-night stand. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kathy Airway, the author of The Food of Taiwan, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Eric Jerome Dickey on the line. His new book is One Night. Hello, Eric. So glad you could join us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on the program. Thank you very much for joining us today. So your new book, One Night, is an erotic romantic thriller, and it's set against the backdrop of Christmas time Los Angeles. Tell us a little bit about the premise of the book, the idea behind it. Uh, the yeah, idea was I wanted to create two characters, uh, a chance meeting. Uh, they meet at a gas station, and both have secrets, of course. Uh, both are at difficult points in their lives. One has just come from doing something uh, pretty dangerous, and possibly uh, the police are, are in pursuit of them. And uh, they meet. They don't get along. But through that, through conversation, they end up going on, I, I would definitely say the adventure of a lifetime for both of them. And the story lasts 
12 hours from 6.31 p.m. to 6.31 a.m. And it's pretty much written real time, uh, minute for minute. So you've you've kept your characters' names unknown. I mean, even to the reader, how do you get? How did you get the idea of keeping them anonymous? And how did you make it work? How did you sustain that? Well, I've done the uh, un- unknown character, um, I believe, twice before in a previous novel, uh, Between Lovers, and also in John V. Have uh, a few years ago. It's um, it's a technique that I really really like. But I think it. The male or female gets to become anyone. It's not any specific person. And hopefully you feel like you're reading about uh, this could happen to anyone. This this could be the, the woman sitting right next door. I mean, sitting right next to me or, or the guy across the room. Uh, I enjoy that technique. I love the anonymity of it uh, for some reason. Uh, and quite a few other writers have, have employed that, that method of writing. And what do you do to, to sustain it? I mean, you must use, you must rely heavily on character descriptions rather than, than names. And is this something you consciously do throughout? Wow, I'm, so, I'm trying to think about it now because I guess I hadn't given it that much thought. <laughs> I, uh, wow, because the other characters, well, because in this novel, the characters don't know each other's name. They don't know each other's name. They never exchange names. Mm. Uh, but it seems to, it seems to work. You, you feel as if you, you know them. Uh, they refer to each other as the girl from Los Angeles, and he's a guy, he's from Orange County. Uh, and, and in L.A., that county line is sort of like two different mentalities. If you're from below the county line, you're perceived a certain way. If you're above the county line, you're perceived a certain way. And both of them pretty much uh, burst, uh, wreck a lot of stereotypes about both sides of the county line during the course of the novel as well. And tell us about the the perception of those county lines. Like, who is he and who is she? Uh, see, uh, Orange County is perceived as John Wayne County, Republican, surfers, like, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> pretty, pretty much like that. They're very Republican, uh, above the county line. She's African-American, so, and she's from a particular part of, of L.A. So she's seen as, well, the, black, the way the black community is seen in the rest of America. Uh, she has dreadlocks. Uh, she's perceived particularly because she has dreadlocks. She has tattoos. But a lot of things she's, she has, especially the tats, are basically to, to cover pain, mm-hmm. if you will. Each tattoo represents an attempt to cover a deeper pain. Uh, she's very Afrocentric. She's very, very intelligent. But it's just this thing. The guy from Orange County, upon first glance, drops her into a particular category. But once he has a conversation with her, once they start, start, once they start revealing uh, their true selves, uh, we get to, I humanize them. I humanize them through the writing, if, if that's the best way to put it. And uh, his status no longer is important. Her, uh, where she's from is no longer important. And you're just with them as they take this magnificent journey that only lasts for 12 hours. So it sounds like race is pretty relevant to the story. And, and how, how did you factor that into this you know, really intimate connection between two people? Well, it is because uh, both characters have what we say similar hues. It doesn't mean they have the same mentality. One character uh, is not an Obama fan. 
wouldn't wouldn't vote for Obama just because he was a black guy that they threw up. Because from that character's point of view, it was Hillary's turn, and he feels as if the nation sold out when they dropped the, the black man in the arena. And the other characters, how could you not vote for somebody black? So they challenge each other all the way down the line. So um, the two of them end up in the uh, hotel room for uh, a pretty spectacular one-night stand. What's the allure of writing about that that sort of singular encounter? Well, for me, uh, writing about the eroticism, a lot of it is the moment before where they are what makes this moment possible and also creating the moment that makes this possible because I would definitely say they meet at 6.30 and by midnight uh, they're getting to know each other. But it's what happens along the way uh, the uh, uh, what happens along the way that, that, makes it, that makes it possible. And also, you get to see who they are as they're, they're having the erotic moments because I'm inside of one of the characters' heads as a um, for the, uh, for, for the duration of the novel. And, and you get to see how everything is processed. It's more than just two people in bed. It's a lot more than that. And then also the moment after, after things have, are starting to cool down and they realize what's just happened, what's just, we, we just met uh, the awkwardness. Uh, how do you feel about yourself? How do you feel about what we just did? And uh, who are we now that we've gone this far? You've created, you find a good balance between eroticism and romance. How do you do it? Uh, I think what it is is eroticism. We're in the moment, and we're not really processing, processing why we're doing what we're doing. We're just in the moment, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But after we're done, uh, I guess we try to go back and make sense, make sense of that moment. Well, well for the romance... Taking two characters who start off as strangers, uh, and the opening scene, I mean, it, it could go either direction, but then having a moment in the middle of their hostility, a soft moment that just changes it for, for her to, I mean, to the sense like, it's, I just met you, I hate you, you just did something really nice, okay, I'm trying not to like you, but you just did something unexpected. Okay, all right. Can we go get something to eat? Okay, uh, so when I work in a scene, generally I try to twist it as many ways as I can. I try to have a, I mean, even when the characters are talking, it's almost like um, uh, the Cary Grant movie, uh, His Girl Friday. The rapid dialogue, the back and forth, the witty banner, and then uh, interjecting moments of seriousness uh, throughout. So I really have fun. I allow the characters to have fun and have moments like that. It's part of the the, uh, discovery process for me. So how did you first come to writing romance? Was it it something you had planned, or did it just come out in the process of your writing? Well, I think it came out in the process when I started. Oh, gosh, I have to think back to films like About Last Night, mm-hmm. Breakfast Club, the, the ensemble piece. Uh, he Said, She Said with uh, Elizabeth McGovern and uh, 
Kevin, uh, I just went blank, uh, seven degrees, Kevin Bacon, <laughs> seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Uh, I love those, I, I, I love those type of films with the ensemble, the, the post-college, uh, 20-something, the group who, in college, they thought they had it all figured out, but when they graduated and entered into the real world, they stepped into a different challenge. Work never went the way they thought. Relationships didn't go the way they thought. Uh, the world just doesn't behave the way you want the world to behave for you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I just really enjoyed, uh, so like in earlier novels, I enjoyed dropping in characters like that. Um, well-educated, upward, upwardly mobile, yet... Uh, when, when it comes to relationships, it was the challenges remained. It was still a struggle because the, the first person you date doesn't always turn out to be the one that you're going to marry. So it's, you know what I mean? And, and if that's what you want, uh, you find yourself in a different place, almost like in an ongoing episode of Sex in the City, right. if you will. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Eric Jerome Dickey, the author of One Night. Um, so you're working in the world of romance and erotica. Most of the writers in that world are women. Was it? Did it feel hard to like break in to gain acceptance? Uh, you know, you know, I didn't even uh, think about that before uh, until until lately. Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Because I definitely. I remember when I first started. Uh, my career, uh, a lot of women would um, look at the look at the novel, look at me, and then they would uh, they would think like, okay, do you know what you're talking about? Well, they, they, well I think they thought it was going to be female bashing. Mm. They thought that my writing was going to be female bashing, but uh, luckily, um, I had when I started out, there were a lot of independents who were pushing uh, pushing my first novels. And a lot of big book clubs uh, picked them up. And with that, I mean, I always say one sells two, sells four, sells eight. Uh, eventually, uh, they were they were they were they were buying the books. They were buying the novels. Handed with this, uh, probably by my third novel, yeah. And a lot of the it's funny. I write from the male uh, point of view as well, but they prefer when I write from the female point of view, which is really funny hmm. for a guy, I guess. Yeah. Did Did you ever think about using a pseudonym or your initials? Yeah, we did when we first started out. Um, it was a different publisher. They wanted me to use uh, a female pseudonym, and of course, mm-hmm. with no photo on the jacket. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but we didn't go that route, and I'm glad we didn't. <laughs> I'm really glad we didn't. I hadn't really given it much thought, I guess because a lot of the writers I read had, uh, well, uh, James Patterson, Stephen King, you know, they've written stuff with uh, male and female voices. 
And I just hadn't, it, it just wasn't that heavy on my mind. I just thought of it as, as a novel. Uh, sometimes I would write something from a male point of view. Sometimes I would write from a female point of view. In earlier novels, I, in the first one, it was, there were, um, let's see, there were three female points of view. The second novel, there were um, uh, two female points of view and a male point of view. And then the third novel, there were two male point of views and a female point of view. And along the way, I've done novels from a male point of view and from a female point of view. So I've sort of just sort of mixed it up. And uh, you also write crime novels. So how do you decide when it's time to switch genres? Do you just get an idea and write it and label it later? I think what happens is, uh, you know how like actors will do a couple of heavy movies and they, then they think, okay, I need to be in a comedy right now. Mm-hmm. I think I'm kind of like that when I write. It's like, okay, I just did something really, really intense. Let me do something a little bit lighter to, you know, let, let's have fun and not be so heavy and uh, ease up on the body count kind of uh, <laughs> right. <kind> of thing. <laughs> because I, I enjoy both. I enjoy, uh, like the last novel, A Wanted Woman, uh, took place in Trinidad, Barbados, Florida, Memphis. And uh, was heavily populated. I mean, I had two organizations, um, the main character, Reaper, trapped in in between two organizations. So I probably had at least uh, 10 named characters in that novel, at least. And uh, and I guess after I came off of that one, I wanted to try to do something with just a couple of characters in it. Something, uh, for me, in my mind, it's simpler. Mm. But it doesn't mean that the story is simple. Because even with this, it's funny because I found myself having um, more of a challenge writing one night than maybe I did a one at woman because I have to keep everything going. I can't necessarily bring in literally the guy with the gun and next thing you know, we have a chase, chase scene. Uh, I had to keep going through, um, well, I guess their interaction, keeping it interesting enough, like like watching uh, before sunset, is it uh, before sunset, before sunrise, with Ethan Hawke and Julia Delphi in it. Right. Uh, keep it keep it interesting enough that the reader is getting to know more about them uh, on a on a on a more personal, deeper level, and at the same time, the dialogue is moving the story forward because. You, uh, there's a lot of mystery in it. There's suspense. And at the end of the day, you feel like, okay, uh, Jackie is in a room with a stranger she just met and knows nothing about. Uh, I sense something is off about this guy. And then, you know, and then of course we have the, the big reveal at some point. But uh, just really just keeping it interesting enough, uh, page to page, because as I said before, because it's basically it wasn't uh, my intent starting out, but it's it's written real real time. It lasts twelve hours, and the um, the audio actually lasts about twelve hours hmm. on it. So it's so I yeah so I pretty much uh, nailed it so far as that. And uh, it's it's like you're traveling with them, you're with them moment by moment as they make decisions, as they make good decisions, as as things happen around them, as uh, as violence erupts, as uh, as truth is revealed. 
So you had, you've been mentioning that, that your characters come from all over the place. Uh, and one of them you had mentioned from Memphis. And, and you yourself were educated at Memphis State University, where you studied, of all things, computer system technology. Um, yeah. It seems, seems a, a big a difference from writing. What drew you to that? And were you writing then? I it's, wow, let's think back to, to those wonderful days. Uh, I, 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 it's funny, it's like I, I enjoyed that profession, but at the same time, uh, always when I was an engineer, it was always, uh, it didn't feel as if I was feeding the creative part of me. Mm-hmm. If you know, uh, because I've always enjoyed basically uh, comedy and acting and stuff like that. But when I was in Memphis, I just, I didn't have that. I didn't have access to uh, to venues like I did when I got to LA. As soon as I got to LA, it was it was another world. I was an engineer, but I'm around. Everyone has a screenplay. Everyone's a writer. Everyone's doing stand up. Everyone's in some sort of of a production. Uh, as soon as their real job ends, where everyone was off to go uh, become some sort of an entertainer. Mm. And I think I just I just fell into that groove. I. Gosh, we started doing stand-up comedy. We did stand-up comedy for about nine years. Uh, a lot of open mic nights, uh, few paid gigs here and there because I had a full-time job and I couldn't just take off for months at a time and do, say, like uh, a college tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, did student films at, gosh, every college in Southern California. <laughs> Every college in Southern California. I mean, it's like every weekend. I mean, literally, it's like every every weekend. It was like putting on a different hat. But you know, but when you're doing that, you're hanging out with writers. You're hanging out with storytellers, and um, and if you see enough scripts, you start trying to write your own stuff. <laughs> right, right. Because I mean, you, you see some good scripts, you see some good scripts, and you see a lot of bad scripts. And in the back of your mind, you think, I can write something better than this. And at some point, you, you know, you, you sit down and try to do the work. Uh, moved on from there, and eventually, um, had a, it's funny, I had a friend named Jackie. <laughs> Jackie. Her name Jackie, of all the names. I just thought about it. And, um, and, but, but that is not her name in the book. I just thought about that. That is too funny. Um, she wanted to take a class at Kyle Poly Pomona which was near our house, because I lived in Phillips Strand at the time. She wanted to take a writing class, a fiction class. And I wasn't too thrilled. It was so funny. I wasn't thrilled about the idea at the time. Uh, but she didn't want to take the class alone. She wanted someone in the class who could understand where she was coming from, because she, uh, she wanted to write something that had happened to her, something that was really personal. Mm. And we got into the class. And, and for me, I felt like I was at home. I mean, just from the first day, I mean, because I'd already done stand-up, I'd already acting, so it just, I just felt like, it just felt like the perfect fit. And the, the funny thing about it was, Jackie took like two classes and never came back. Hmm. Oh, wow. I, yeah, she took two classes and never came back. I stayed. And I just moved from class to class. I just really, really enjoyed um, working on uh, fiction, storytelling. And eventually moved from there to an uh, extension program at UCLA through the uh, International Black Writers and Artists of Los Angeles, who gave me a partial scholarship to go there. And it just, for me, it was just like, I, I just could not get enough. I just, but for me, I, I just really enjoyed what I was doing. Just when I was a kid, I would call it making up stuff. 
So I just enjoyed making up stuff. You know, one day it would be sci-fi. One day it would be relationship. The next one day it would be from uh, uh, a European character's point of view. One day it would be from a 13-year-old girl's point of view. I just loved trying to create characters. I didn't think much about that. I'm a guy, I'm an African-American male, and I should create a particular type of character. And I'm glad I didn't, because I would just think of something and just go for it. Like, who should be in this story? Okay, this story is about a 13-year-old girl. Who should be in this story? Okay, this story is about a 80-year-old blues singer, and all of his friends have died off one by one except for two. And the last two um, get together and have conversation about what's happened over the years and how things have changed. So it just sort of just, it just sort of depended, you know. I, I, I didn't limit myself. Hmm. I think what happens once you get into the business, being in a genre tends to limit the writer. But I don't think writers necessarily limit themselves because I think and, and everything we write isn't always about it being a bestseller you know it's still writing is still fun it's still experimental it's still seeing if I can uh, if I can do a novel based on this or if I can write five pages based on this you know you know, you know so for me I mean that's the joy of it and uh, the part I like best is the process I mean just creating Jackie uh, she's at a gas station trying to trying to pull a con. Create the guy who pulls up and she tries to pull the con on, and just seeing where it goes, and then just watching it go to a wonderful place. Uh, and, and, and it's funny because during the course of one night, there was a moment where I was about to do a, and then the next day kind of thing, you know, jump to the next day. But I was like, okay. What happens if I just keep going? Mm. What if we don't end it? What, what if I just keep going? Okay, he's left the scene. How do I get him back? Mm. How do I get him back into the story? And then it's like, okay, Jackie just calls him and says, come back. Why? Because she doesn't feel like being by herself. Why? Because well, the motivation is this. Christmas time, her boyfriend's not answering his phone. This is the only person in this area where basically we're reined in and traffic is a bad air. Well, come back and, have, and we sit down and talk. And so it begins. And so it begins. They go from two people being hostile in a parking lot at a Chevron gas station to, to two people sitting across the table from each other at a Denny's. You know, and, and then writing just, and just keep the moment going. You know, the characters are revealing things about themselves, hopefully pulling the reader in. Also, but pulling me in at the same time as the writer. The writer has to be pulled in. We have to be excited about it because we're, you know, every word is playing what if, what if, what if, what if. What if she says this? What if this goes in this direction? Oh, what does this story become now? And and just keeping it going um, to, to creating moments where a couple of hours ago they were strangers now they're having a conversation. Then the next moment is like they've touched hands. So and for me, writing, it was a big deal. I mean, that they touched hands mm. and that moment wasn't hostile. They're crossing the street in the rain and he takes her hand as a gentleman as they cross the street. They're, you know what I mean? They're, they're making contact. And for Jackie, is like, 
that moment is probably what did it for her because it's like she enjoyed him holding her hand and she wished that the street was like 50 miles wide because <laughs> when they crossed the street, he let her hand go and she missed the touch. So this, and so it's gradually I'm seeing where Jackie is, where she is in her life. And it's, some, it's a very human thing to want to be touched, to be around hundreds of people at any moment and still long to be touched. So someone to hold your hand to, uh, and not necessarily have a conversation, just to have that human connection. Because I think for Jackie, uh, after the death of her child, she's, she's disconnected. She's disconnected and trying to figure out how to reconnect. And it's just not happening. So anyway, so yeah, so that's, that's sort of like where I am when I'm writing it. And, and, and again, as I said, moment by moment, you know, they do something. Uh, you find out more about the guy from Orange County, which uh, hopefully keeps the reader turning the page because cause he's a mystery and he's supposed to be an enigma uh, until the end. You know, then you really feel like you know who he is and just moving them from place to place. And then and it comes to this moment where it's, you know, they're standing in a parking lot and... Uh, it's time. You know, it's time for the. Uh, it's time for them to say farewell. But then someone says, "Well, why don't we go somewhere else where it's warm and dry and be alone?" Because I don't feel like being alone right now. Hmm. Nobody wants to go home. No one wants to be exhausted. No one wants to go home. We wish it could go on and on and on forever. But things have to come to an end, especially things that are probably that film uh, like fantasies come true. Well, unfortunately, the show also has to come to an end. I wish we could keep talking about your book forever. It sounds amazing. But uh, this, this has been incredible. Eric, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We've been talking with Eric Jerome Dickey, and you can find his book One Night in stores right now. Eric, I really appreciate you taking the time for us. Oh, thank you. No, it's great. I really, really enjoyed it. It's, it's, it's truly a pleasure to actually be able to talk to you guys. Huh? <laughs> well, we've enjoyed it, too. Thank you. Well, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot brings us the early BEA buzz, so stay tuned. I'm Kevin Sessoms, author of I Left It on the Mountain, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot, who is our, our fan favorite guest, is here <laughs> to tell us what to expect at next month's Book Expo America, also known as BEA. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. Hey, Mark. Hello. I'm, I'm not actually kidding about that uh, fan favorite thing. Like yeah, I, 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 I got fan mail saying, oh, Jim was terrific. Like, gotta, gotta I know it was from Mark, but that's okay. I'll well, take it. I thought that was going to be anonymous. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so uh, Book Expo America is suddenly right around the corner. I mean, it's a month away, but everybody's already scrambling to prepare. Uh, what's, what's on our radar for BEA? Well, like you said, Rose, uh, it seems like it's uh, around the corner when you hit uh, almost May 1st. And yep. uh, it's in the industry, it'll be uh, BEA focus between now and the show start, which is May 27th here in Javits. And of course, this uh, we have a, our BEA preview, our pre-BEA issue coming up next week. And this is what we're going to talk about. So 
Right, yeah, what we're looking at here, well, we do a couple of things, you know, on an annual basis uh, around BEA, which, you know, a lot of people use the show for special events mm-hmm. and announcements and that sort of thing. And we always hand out our uh, Bookstore of the Year and our Rep of the Year Award. Um, so this year, um, Books and Books of uh, Florida, Carl Gables and Great. Mitch Kaplan Great. is our Bookstore of the Year. And our Rep of the Year is... Uh, Jennifer Sheridan, who's a children's sales rep for HarperCollins. And we have uh, uh, some lengthy profiles of both uh, in this week's issue. Great. And uh, great for Mitch Kaplan, too. I mean, he's been a a big force down in Miami with the uh, Miami Book Festival or Festival of the Book. And um, that's great. Yeah, Mitch has been, you know, it's almost every year when we do one of these things, the first reaction to the people, the judges, and some others in the industry is, you mean they haven't won before? <laughs> it's about uh, time. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so uh, yeah, that was, there was a lot of that uh, f- for Mitch, because like you said, I mean, he, uh, he's responsible for a lot of the book culture down there in yeah. South Florida, um, as you mentioned. And he's also done a, you know, a lot of innovative things. So he's got an you know, a, a affiliate uh, deal up here with, in West Hampton with the Books and Books. Um, he's got a deal in the Cayman Islands, which, uh, you know, is very interesting. He's got a store there. Um, uh-huh. And he's done some uh, book publishing through the through this store. And um, as part of his own th- th- uh, personal deal, he acquires rights to uh, some books and tries to make them into films. Wow. So he's quite the entrepreneur. And, yeah. we're, you know, real, real excited uh to be giving him the award uh, at the Thursday yeah. breakfast, uh, or Friday breakfast, excuse me. Right. A uh, couple, couple weeks. Wow. So um, there's a lot that's revving up already. What else are we covering in our, our pre-BEA issue? Uh, well, I just want to give one a quick shout out to um, Jennifer, who's, like I said, our oh, rep yes, of the year. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because there's a quote in here that's just great. Uh, one of the authors whose book she sold she says she's kind of like a sales rep Mary Poppins. So, <laughs> wow, I can kind of see her uh, flying around uh, selling books with uh, an right. umbrella in her hand right. somehow. Um, but the big news uh, this year is, and not to confuse people who aren't intimately aware of BEA, um, BEA and BookCon right. are being more separated this year. So, um, so tell us a little bit about that for the listeners who aren't familiar with the distinction. And this started two years ago. Or, uh, well, BookCon uh, was officially launched last year. Right. Um, and it's by ReadPop. And ReadPop is also the uh, organization that runs the New York Comic Con. Mm-hmm. And they run other cons mm-hmm. um, across the country in different industries. So now their fervent hope is to turn BookCon into Comic Con. <laughs> um, and last year, they, they announced it a bit late uh, in the year, but only about two or three months ahead of the actual launch. And they had over 10,000 people show up, hmm. um, which surprised pretty much everybody. Right. And it surprised them so much that even the Reed folks would uh, acknowledge that it was a bit chaotic. Yeah. Um, but given that it was a sellout, last year, like I said, it was one year. This year, it will be uh, Saturday and Sunday. So, you, yeah, last year it was one day. It was that Sunday. BEA went and you know, ended on Saturday. And well, there was a, yes, right. Right. right and right, then, yeah. so this year is the first time there's going to be two. Two, yeah, and it'll two be the days, same yeah. floor. It'll right. be uh, both at Javits. And what you can do is if you're a publisher and you want to be in both, you get a certain place in the floor, floor and you can be in both. Mm-hmm. But if you only want to be in 
the BEA section, you're, let's say, on the right-hand side. If you want to mm-hmm. just be in BookCon, you're in the left-hand side. Mm. Right. And when Friday rolls around, they'll put up a wall or uh, whatever where if, if you weren't, uh, weren't going to be in BookCon, you, you can, sh- you can uh, pack up and go home. And and how have publishers been feeling? I think publishers were excited about it last year, so much so that they've agreed to do two days this year. Right. I mean, it's it's something that I think is increasingly intrigued by. I mean, this is obviously a direct outreach to the consumers, right. which is you know one of the buzzwords uh, in the industry recently, and they are intrigued, as I said, by it. I think they have a better handle on how they're going to handle it this year than they mm-hmm. did last year when it was kind of. They threw it together, I think it's fair to say. Um, but there's still some questions about, you know, do we have the right books? Because, you know, BEA is really about the fall. Right. Um, right. And and the uh, book con is about the now. It's about and what we want, yeah. So it's, something. A, so it's a change in mindset, too, for, for publishers. I mean, for the first three days for, for Book Expo, they're thinking, all right, we're, we're, we're looking at the fall and beyond. But then all of a sudden you have consumers coming in for those two days, and you're thinking, well, they want stuff that's out now. And you have to and, pack twice as much. Right, exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. Ship yeah. twice as many boxes. Yeah. Oh yeah, there is that, and it's just and it's the whole mindset. You know, BEA is obviously your know, industry professionals, and right. um, BookCon is totally, totally for the consumers with a really heavy dose uh, of celebrities. Right. You know, we had one publisher tell us that you know they had proposed some literary type panels, and they quickly rejected, saying you know they really didn't have the mass appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, that you want. I mean, Mindy Cali, for instance, is um, you know kick, helping kick off the the show. So it's those types of um, brand name, well connected, and not necessarily big name authors mm-hmm. uh, that um, you know BookCon wants to attract. Right. But there's, I mean, there's celebrities writing books all the time. It's uh, I feel like there's there's so much bleed between. Uh, who's a who's a celebrity, and then who's a celebrity author, and who's you know starts out as an author and becomes a celebrity. And, uh, I know right. that that there there are some superstar authors who've got huge mass appeal you know, who could really headline something like this. Right? Yeah, there will be there will be that kind of mix. Yeah. Um, but they are, you know, f- to their credit, I guess they are unapologetic in that. You know, we think celebrities and. A lot of young adults. I mean, yep. that last year, right. by far and away, the uh, the biggest demographic was uh, teen girls, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody was actually a little surprised by that because you hear so much that, you know, our kids reading or teens <laughs> reading. And here they were more or less overwhelmed. They were mobbing the place. They, right. Yeah, they were mobbing the place, exactly. And also, I mean, as we've, 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 we've uh, reported on before the large number of adults reading young adults now or a growing number of, of adults reading young adult books. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you have that coming in. So daughters with their mothers, perhaps both interested <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. same author. And I do think the demographic was, yeah, definitely skewed uh, female. Mm-hmm. So um, I think they expect that to continue too. But it's, it's, it's exciting. I mean, again, uh, not everybody knows what quite to make of it, <laughs> make of it all. They're expecting, you know, fifteen to twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. That's uh, amazing. Yeah. So, which is not just pretty good for just really, really about eighteen months. Yeah. And, and what are we looking at uh, average attendance for BEA? Uh, BEA, the, the BEA is usually between twenty and twenty-five thousand. Right. Um, 
I haven't seen any projections for this year, but I'm, I'm pretty confident it'll it'll fall in that range. Hmm. So let's talk just a little bit about BEA and who are the headliners? Who's our uh, opening uh, opening master or mistress of ceremonies, <laughs> as it were? How who do we have? Well, they have the anti book con and Jonathan Franzen um, right. is kicking off the event at uh, twelve thirty on um, that Wednesday. And uh, Laura Miller will be interviewing him. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's kind of the kickstart the whole thing. Right. And then, you know, there are their usual assortments of, you know, like hundreds of autographing sessions um, and a couple of breakfast, uh, author breakfasts are scheduled. But one thing we should note, um, you know, every year they invite uh, a, a foreign country to be the guest host. And this year it's China. Mm-hmm. And uh, China it will be the... The biggest, by far the biggest international presence they've ever had, and I think it's the biggest booth BA has ever had, it's 23,000 square feet. Wow. So you wow. won't. It's like an apartment. <laughs> it is That's like a an big apartment. apartment. And wow. you won't be able to miss it. Um, and they're bringing over, uh, you know, several hundred uh, publishing execs and quite a number of authors. So it's going to be really interesting to, uh, to see how they all interact. I mean, the Chinese are using this. Um, as an occasion to really try to build their awareness in the American and you know other Western markets about what's going on in in China publishing circles. We sell a lot mm-hmm. into China, relatively speaking, um, but really we don't really buy too much from China. And this is one of the things that they'll be be emphasizing. Plus, they're going to have a lot of cultural exhibits and displays. You know, some of it are in and around the city. So they see this as, you know, a pretty important event for them. Right. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. Um, I, I know that over in my genre of science fiction, we're just starting to see more translation. Uh, we just had Ken Liu on the radio, who's an author as well as a translator, and he's translating a lot of Chinese SF for the right. American and European markets. Is is that happening in other areas as well? It's, you know, it's it's more of a trickle than anything right now, which mm-hmm. is... Uh, I know they're a little bit frustrated by that. So yeah. this is something that they hope, uh, you know, again, will up the awareness and show show the Americans and others uh, what they have to offer. That sounds... Uh, yeah. I'm just still trying to picture a, a booth that size. <laughs> you, you, could, you could just spend all day well, there. Well, a long time ago, there was something called Random Land, when Random was really <laughs> right. big. Right, so this, right. is, this, might, this will be, I think I'm succeeding that. Great. Oh, that's... that's uh, that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it all how it all comes together. Over, you know, we're working with them to do a special supplements um, for BEA that right. uh, will be handed out at the show. Hopefully, right. <laughs> if you get it done in time. And this is also so they're starting on Wednesday, which is which is something new, is it? Right. Well, it's, it's, it's what's really new about it is that they're starting at one o'clock. The whole show is the floor. Is opening at one, um, and the um, panels and session and educational sessions, which have always been a part of the show, right. um, will start in the morning. Now, what had happened for a long time was a lot of the conference part of it would start the day before the exhibit floor would open. Mm-hmm. Um, but to try to make it a little more compact, maybe save you know some over uh, hotel bills for uh, some of the exhibitors. Right. They try to compact it down into just three three days Mm -hmm. so you know the show floor is only going to be open for two and a half days so you know we'll see how that works um and plus you know with the 
there will be some companies that will be at BookCon too. So you could be going from three or four days to five days. Right. Right. So you didn't need, I think they're a little worried that, you know, you had all these panels and conferences on the Tuesday before the actual show. Mm-hmm. There would be a lot of burnout right. <laughs> come, yeah, sure. uh, come the end of the week. That's a long time to just talk business nonstop because it all goes into the evening too, to all of the, the parties where everyone inevitably talks about work. <laughs> right, yeah. As we all know at PW, yeah. parties are an important part of right. the EA. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, BEA usually has these discussion panels. Are those being kind of cannibalized by BookCon at all? Are you seeing a change in the, the panels that happen at BEA proper? No, I think um, they're, they're, both, they're all pretty, uh, pretty vibrant. I, I would say there's probably more now at um, BookCon. Um, obviously than there were last year, but they've kept it pretty distinct. Um, and I think it will see, you know, more of, as we said, sort of the literary authors, uh, showing up at BEA mm-hmm. with, uh, the emphasis being on the celebrity types, uh, during BookCon. Um, but I, I think it'll work out. Uh, well, as we said, it's, it's new territory, both in the, the late start of the show um, how many people will show up at BookCon? Um, will people be tired of it come <laughs> come Sunday? And then, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but you know, next year, uh, BEA is moving to Chicago, which w- hasn't been there a long time. It used to be uh, a moving a moving feast in of ways in ways. Uh, DC, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, uh, alternate to New York. So this is the first time it's been. Somewhere else in five years? Well, probably at least that. Yeah, you still yeah. it quite a bit, as right. you said. So now there's you know people speculating, um, what will they do with BookCon? Right? Right. Will BookCon stay here? Probably. Will they try to do a BookCon in Chicago? I don't know. I mean, it could right. be because it's coming back to New York right after Chicago. Right. But right. if they're modeling it on Comic Cons, then there could be book cons suddenly popping up all over the country. I think all the, over uh, the world, you I'm, know. I'm sure Reed would love that. I'm sure they would. Um, right. And if the publishers will support it, well, that's another question. Uh, you know, if it succeeds, obviously the publishers will get behind it. Right. Um, so I think, you know, this year it'll be an important uh, test to see if they really can get the enthusiasm they had last year, you know, and is it worth, you know, keeping here and maybe, as you suggest, taking it out on the road. Well, I'm sure there are teenage girls all over the country who would love to meet their favorite authors. <laughs> yeah, there is that. If, if that's the target demographic, no problem. <laughs> well, Jim, thank you very much. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you, and we'll see you at BEA. See you at BEA. <laughs> we'll be uh, tweeting, reporting, everything yeah. live. and Covering the it. booth. Covering the booth. <laughs> right, exactly. Thanks, Jim. Thanks a lot. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Joshua Davis. I'm the author of Spare Parts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with returning guest Michael J. Martinez, author of The Venusian Gambit. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 